this will not be a personal lecture. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a bit. We're going to come down to southern Europe. We're going to go to Italy. How many of you have been to Florence? I think we beat Amsterdam. <laughs> we'll see if we beat London as well. Okay, very good. Um, so Florence is a city I love dearly. I feel it's my second home. I, uh, my research focuses on Renaissance Florence. I work on uh, manuscripts in Florence in the uh, late, mid late Middle Ages and Renaissance. Uh, what I want to do today is give you a, an overview of not only the, the city, but as a musicologist, I want to give you a sense of the sounds of late Renaissance Florence, the kinds of sounds that, that you may have heard in Florence walking around the streets, entering famous building uh, around the year 1599. Now, when you think about Florence, um, you probably have certain images in mind. That of the cathedral is certainly one of those very prominent uh, images, one of the icons, if you will, of Renaissance Florence. Uh, you might also think of the beautiful Arno River that flows through the city of Florence. Uh, you might have images of uh, uh, beautiful piazzas with uh, horse-drawn carriages. Um, and this is really what Florence is still today. Um, unlike Amsterdam, I think Florence is a city that saw its um, height, its moment of glory in the Renaissance period. If I were to ask you right now, uh, give me a few names of famous artists um, or literary figures from the Renaissance, probably a number of those figures uh, would be Florentine artists and literary figures. Uh, I'm thinking of Dante, I'm thinking of Machiavelli, I'm thinking of Michelangelo, Leonardo, and so on and so on, Giotto. Um, and as you walk around Florence still today, these elements of the Renaissance are still very, very prominent. They are everywhere. They are uh, not only in the Renaissance buildings that you will enter and look at, but also um, just on city streets. This is something from the uh, Church of Orsan Michele, uh, Renaissance uh, statues um, that you know face you as you walk through the city, through the uh, streets of Florence. Um, let's get a sense of what Italy looked like around 1599. Um, many of you will know that Italy is a very recent country. It was not unified until 1861, which is quite amazing for us to think about. Uh, in the Renaissance, Italy was really uh, nothing more than a series of city-states, of, re of republics and of city-states. Um, some of the, the most prominent ones were the Republic of, Flor of um, Venice up in the north right here. Um, but here is where Florence was, right there, the Republic of Florence, um, right in the center, and Florence being the capital of that republic. But notice all of these independent city-states, each one with its own ruler. Um, so there's really no sense of a unified country uh, by any means. Uh, this is a view of uh, Florence in the Renaissance around 1558. It's from a famous fresco by uh, Giorgio Vasari, The Siege of Florence. And notice that the city really doesn't look that different from today's city. Uh, it's a bit smaller. 
Um, but you still notice the cathedral. You still notice uh, many of the more prominent churches that are still there today. Uh, you notice the city hall, the so-called Palazzo Vecchio. Um, some of the city gates are very prominently displayed. So it's a city that has very much retained its Renaissance flavor, its Renaissance image. Um, this is actually an image from one of the manuscripts that I study, that I research. And uh, right here in the background, uh, depicted in great detail, you have the entire city of Florence. Um, and again, those monuments that I mentioned earlier are very carefully um, uh, painted on this um, parchment as part of this manuscript. Uh, this is a map of Florence um, today. And uh, Renaissance Florence was uh, smaller. Um, essentially, it extended beyond the river, just kind of what I have pasted here on for you. That was Renaissance Florence. But you notice that within this map, there's kind of a square. That square right there, right in the center, we have kind of a square. And then around that, we have the surrounding more expanded city. Um, there is a reason for that square. Does anyone know why it is that way, shaped that way? It has to do with the fact that Florence was a city that was founded by the ancient Romans. And it was customary for the Romans to plan their cities according to axes, a vertical axis and a horizontal axis, and then everything kind of grew around that. And you see that axis right here. That's one axis, and that is the other axis. So everything was in grids, planned in grids. This is a tourist map of Florence. Uh, if you've been to Florence, you may have received one of these tourist maps from your hotel or from the train station. Uh, and uh, what you notice are many of the buildings uh, that are considered to be the kind of tourist attractions of Florence. And those buildings are primarily late medieval and Renaissance buildings. And we could talk about each one. I'm not going to do that right now. But some of the, some of the main churches, like... Um, uh, Santa Maria Novella, which is a 13th century church. Uh, the Duomo, of course, being a late medieval Renaissance church. Um, but many of the uh, uh, palaces are from the Renaissance. So once again, Renaissance Florence is still what is viewed by tourists today, what makes Florence most interesting. Um, and of course, you think of some of the icons, not only the Cathedral of Florence that I mentioned, but the great David by Michelangelo, um, the famous paintings uh, by uh, Botticelli, including um, uh, the one here, La Primavera, uh, the famous facade by Alberti, uh, which is the facade of the Church of Santa Maria Novella. Uh, these are all, look at the dates, um, obviously, from within the 15th or early 16th century. Um, the Cathedral of Florence, I do want to talk about for just a few minutes, just kind of pause on this for just a few minutes, because it's not only perhaps the icon of Florence, but it's also one of the foremost icons of the Renaissance uh, in our kind of collective imagination, if you will. Um, it's a church that was founded in 1296, but most of what you see today is actually a product of the Renaissance period of the 15th century, except for the facade, um, which is actually something that was created in the late 19th century to look like a Renaissance facade, but it's actually a 19th century facade. Um, 
the cathedral dominates the city landscape. It is absolutely massive. And when it was consecrated, finished and consecrated in the year 1436, it was by far the largest church in the entire Christian world. Now, this made the Florentines extremely proud, extremely proud that they had achieved something that no one else had ever achieved before. And the crowning achievement from a artistic, architectural point of view was the great cupola, the great dome that caps the cathedral. Uh, and for many years, um, they had finished the construction of the cathedral, uh, and the dome was left unfinished because no one could figure out how to build a dome that was that massive in shape. Until um, a very innovative uh, architect, uh, a genius, if you will, uh, Filippo Brunelleschi, uh, came into the picture with a grand idea for how you could build a dome that was as massive as the dome that now covers the Cathedral of Florence. And so there it is. Uh, to give you a sense of the scale, uh, take a look at the little gold uh, sphere, little gold sphere on the very top of the cathedral right there. Um, you can actually walk up to that golden sphere. I have not done that, <laughs> nor will I ever attempt to do that. But there is a way that you can actually climb through a series of staircases and go into, uh, has anyone done that? Oh my gosh, I mean, into the actual golden sphere? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I mean, I, we have all climbed up there, that's fine. But I mean, you can actually go into, you can actually go into the golden sphere that is at the very top of the cupola, okay? This is open to the public, but this you have to get special permissions and blah, blah. Uh, guess how many people will actually physically fit in that little gold sphere? About 10 people, okay? So we can take all of you right here, and you would all pretty comfortably fit within the golden sphere in the very top of the cathedral uh, uh, dome. So that's just to give you a sense of the scale of this huge dome that Filippo Brunelleschi designed in the 15th century. There it is. Um, just to give you a sense of the pride that surrounded the construction of the cathedral. This is something that Leon Battista Alberti, a famous um, architect, uh, painter, artist from this period, uh, wrote. Uh, it's uh, the introduction to a treatise that he wrote on painting. And it is dedicated in the year 1436 to Filippo Brunelleschi himself. And this is what he says. I came to realize that it was not only thanks to the gifts we have received from nature, but also to our ability and diligence that we have the capacity to achieve great distinction in any field. Because the ancients had an, um, an abundance of models to imitate and from which to learn, it was easier for them to master those supreme arts which are so challenging for us today. Consequently, we deserve greater acclaim in view of our lack of tutors and models, for we managed to discover arts and sciences hitherto unheard of and unseen. Who could be so dense or so envious as not to praise the architect Filippo Brunelleschi after seeing such a grand structure towering into the skies, large enough to cover all the Tuscan people with its shadows, uh, built without the support of beams or scaffolding, I believe that such an accomplishment, so great that the people of our times imagined it impossible, was equally unknown and unheard of 
in antiquity. I could have used 20 other statements of this sort. Okay? Now, the year is 1436. We are at the height of the Florentine Renaissance. And the Renaissance men and women are very proud people, perhaps a bit arrogant as well, but very proud, very much aware of their status in the world. Um, for the next very few minutes, I do want to focus on essentially uh, four locations of Florence. One, we're going to start at the cathedral. Uh, I want to give you a sense of the sounds that you may have heard in some of these locations. Then we're going to talk about music that you may have heard in the streets of Florence. After all, not all music was music that happened indoors, but there was often improvisational, more spontaneous music that could have taken place as well. So music of the streets of Renaissance Florence. Uh, and then we're going to talk about music that actually took place in the Uffizi, um, what is today the Uffizi Museum, the Uffizi Gallery, which back then was actually part of the private residence of the Medici family, who were the rulers of Florence. And then um, we're going to talk just briefly for just a few seconds here about um, music that took place in a famous um, palazzo, the palace of the Bardi family, uh, that were great patrons of music and the arts. <coughs> music at the Cathedral of Florence. Most music at the Cathedral of Florence in this period would have been Gregorian chant, as you hear in this recording. Very simple, monophonic, religious music that had been around for many centuries. This was your everyday type of music that would have been uh, sung for most of these celebrations at the Cathedral of Florence. But on very special liturgical uh, feast days, you would have had music that was much more elaborate in nature. And so we go from Gregorian chant or monophony to polyphonic choral music. So very different musical traditions, both coexisting uh, in the realm of uh, a church as prominent as the Cathedral of Florence around the year 1599. How about more spontaneous, improvisatory music that you may have heard walking around the streets of Florence in 1599? Um, to give you a sense... You notice that in this uh, excerpt, uh, the music is uh, quite simple in nature. Uh, you have one melodic line, in this, case, in this case played by a recorder, that is the prominent line. Uh, there is uh, kind of a bouncy, almost dance-like feel. This would have been the music that sort of, you know, common folks, uh, not the high um, aristocratic uh, classes or uh, people of... Um, 
uh, who were members of the clergy would have performed. Another example of this type of more spontaneous improvisatory music Okay, I'm going to stop that one because we're getting two pieces at once. But uh, I hope you heard somewhat that there was uh, a vocalist there who was singing in a very kind of straightforward syllabic uh, fashion. Um, you know, another example of uh, music from this uh, time period um, that you would have heard in the streets of Florence. Um, how about music for... Um, uh, personal entertainment for household entertainment. Here you have the beautiful painting by Caravaggio, the lute player, which is a painting from this period, from about 1600. Uh, and the lute, uh, like the guitar today perhaps, was one of the most common household instruments together with uh, the violin, together with the recorder. You could add the harpsichord or the clavichord to that list. And uh, so this is music that you might have heard in someone's home in 1599. Okay, now I do want to uh, shift a little bit and talk about uh, the uh, who ruled Florence in 1599. Um, Ferdinand I of the Medici family, the very powerful Medici family, was the ruler of Florence. He had a very fancy special title of Grand Duke of Tuscany, uh, ruler of Florence from, from 1587 to 1609. Uh, he was a great patron of music and all the arts, visual, literary, uh, musical arts. And this is... Um, and maybe Charlotte can talk about this sometime in the future, but this is a very special type of art that he cultivated at his court. And that was the uh, technique known as pietre dure, in the essentially inlaid hard stone decorative art. And it is absolutely phenomenal what they were able to achieve. Uh, these are all pieces of uh, stone and marble that has been put together very much like a mosaic, and, uh, you know, it's something that was very much cultivated in Florence in this period under the patronage of Ferdinand I. In uh, 1589, Ferdinand and Christine of Lorraine, princes of France, marry. Uh, it is a great excuse, if you will, for the Florentines and the Medici in particular to go all out. They have weeks of celebrations surrounding this wedding. Um, and we're going to focus on the music for this wedding, which is very, very new, very innovative. We're talking about moments of change in this initiative. And this is one of those great moments of musical change under the patronage, under the sponsorship of the Medici family through the excuse, if you will, of this great wedding. Very important wedding. Um, so... A new type of music is introduced as part of these uh, celebrations surrounding the wedding of 1589. Uh, the pieces are known as the Intermedi, uh, which were performed in the halls of the Uffizi Gallery today. Uh, they are a set of six Intermedi on allegorical myth mythological subjects, very elaborate set designs, lavish costumes by uh, famous artists of that period, Bernardo Bontalenti, who died in 1608, 
Uh, very innovative music by seven composers, including, you have the names there, Cavalieri, Bardi, and Giulio Caccini. Um, to give you a flavor of the sound, which will be very different, I think, from what you just heard until this moment. So uh, we could go on talking about this piece, but I'm out of time. But essentially what you hear is a very different kind of texture. Instead of either um, the idea of polyphony, where you have multiple uh, lines of vocal music singing in a sort of contrapuntal fashion, instead of that, which would have been the most common way of singing all through the Renaissance period, what you have is a single voice accompanied by instruments. Uh, and all of the attention is on the singer. And what is the singer doing? Well, she is performing, she is singing in a highly ornamented fashion. And this idea of ornamentation, of lots of embellishments, lots of notes, as Mozart would have said some centuries later, uh, is something very new in the early Baroque period. So we have here a wonderful example of the kind of musical transition of the moment of change that is happening right here in Florence in 1589, of going from a texture that would have been very typical of the, of the Renaissance period, lots of voices, polyphonic texture, to a texture where all the attention is on a single singer. And that texture is known as monody. Okay? And Florence is the first city in the entire Western world to explore this kind of texture. And we'll have lectures in the future where we will explore why the Florentines and Italians after the Florentines uh, and others in Europe after Florence became so interested in this new texture of monody. Thank you very much.